Number 313 has been selected. Brother Randall has asked us to mark that song, so if you would, mark that, and at the proper time tonight, we'll stand and hymn that together as a song of encouragement and song of invitation, if you will. As certainly we might always uh, continue, I should say, to keep in mind, let's, as Brother Roger mentioned for us this morning during the announcements, our Bible Bowl effort this coming Saturday. So let's certainly be uh, thinking uh, for our youngsters as they participate in that and all the others that we might encourage them and be a part of that in the way that uh, that would be a proper thing for us to do. And again, as we contemplate that, it has been the driving force behind our choice of lessons over the last uh, two and a half months or so. And tonight, we come to the 15th installment in that set of lessons over the book of John, the fourth gospel account in the New Testament. Please turn with me, if you would, to that set of verses that close this book. In particular, during the lesson this morning, we drew near the close of it with the 18th verse of chapter 20. And so tonight, we will look from verse 19 of chapter 20 on to verse 25 of chapter 21. And in so doing, we'll draw our study of the book of John to its conclusion. As we have been reminded in the book of John, the central character not only in this book, but yea, in the entirety of the New Testament, and in the entirety of the Bible as well, is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. The Old Testament, in fact, looks so dramatically forward to His coming in the flesh. The opening four books of the New Testament affirm He did come in the flesh. The latter books of the New Testament assert that, in fact, He is coming yet again. And life must be built on Him and around Him if we are to have any hope of life in heaven. With this book, then, of John before us, tonight might we give some appreciation to the character of this closing chapter and a half or so, and might we remember one final time that the central mission of the Lord's coming to earth perhaps is summarized in Luke 19.10 in a dramatic way. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And doesn't that include all of us? Doesn't it include each and every one of us in recognition of the fact that we are guilty of sin? And hence, inasmuch as He came to seek and save the lost, might we look at the way this book closes for a dramatic way that that will be applied to our life even yet today. Beginning in chapter 20, verse number 19, as we look at the text, we will do so in the same way that we have done in the last couple of lessons. We'll remind ourselves of the structure of the text and then we will re revisit and provide some lessons based in fact upon it. This morning... We notice that our Savior, of course, was crucified. Inasmuch as they had cried, Crucify, crucify, Pilate turned him over to the Jews, and they carried out that which they desired. They hung our Savior on the cross, nailing him or affixing him to it. And inasmuch as they crucified him, that brought us to appreciate that in six hours his life was over here in the flesh. About three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, our Savior, in fact, died, and that brought us to appreciate then in that period of time, shortly within a couple of hours, they buried his body, Joseph and Nicodemus did so, having hastily prepared it due to the fact that the Sabbath was shortly to begin. We have no record of that Sabbath day, but it would seem that Mary Magdalene and the other women, as well as those disciples, were greatly said in their mind concerning the things that had taken place the day before. However, on that Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Mary and the other women came to the place where the body had been laid, and much to their surprise and 
perhaps greatly later to their wonderful enjoyment, they found the tomb empty. And in fact, those angels directly said, at least in Matthew's account, He is not here, He is risen, Matthew 28, 6. And hence, we reminded ourselves of some of the other events. The Lord directly appeared to Mary, for she mistook Him for the gardener. And that brought us to some of the last things in the lesson this morning. Jesus said to Mary, Great words of peace, marvelous words of comfort. That brings us, though, to where verse 19 begins this evening. It is significant. In the study this morning, the Lord had appeared to selected ones of His followers, to Mary Magdalene as well as to two of the women, it would seem. But He had not yet appeared to the actual apostles, to those like Peter and Andrew and James and John. Notice that that will quickly be fixed, beginning in verse number 19. For here we find ourselves in the evening hour of that first day of the week. Jesus had arisen now early this morning. Now throughout the course of the day, now in the evening hours of that day, the, the apostles are gathered together. As they are gathered or assembled, if you please, in verse number 19, we are told that they are assembled in a secret way because they are fearful for their lives due to the fact of what the Jews had done to Jesus only three days before. Their meeting secretly, however, was wonderfully interrupted when, despite the fact that the doors were closed, the Lord Jesus appears in their midst. We are quickly reminded, aren't we, that the Lord was not in the physical body any longer. With the doors being shut, Jesus was able to pass through the confines of the space of those walls and appeared in the midst of them. As He appeared in their midst, beginning in verse number 19, He had a lovely message for them. Peace be unto you. The Lord declared peace to them, for no doubt, at least immediately, they surely must have been somewhat agitated at the sudden appearance of this one. And now with him in their midst, we notice interestingly enough that this meeting was a bit unusual because Thomas was not there. This meeting has taken place. The very purpose of it we are not told in the Scriptures. But one could only imagine what some of the topics of conversation at this meeting must have been. After all, their leader, the one crucified, the one whose body was laid in the cross, the women went that morning and found the stone rolled away. His body wasn't there. Almost certainly that, that must have been one of the topics of conversation. And now he appears in their midst. Jesus, the risen Son of God, appears to these who were His disciples, these who, of course, were the, were the apostles themselves. And Jesus spoke some amazing words to them. You and I sometimes call them the commissioning words that the Lord gave. In Matthew's account, it reads like this, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Mark's account reads like this. Go and preach to all creatures under heaven. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Luke's account reads like this in Luke 24, verse 46. Particularly the Savior had stated, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
John's account in John 20, verse number 21, much briefer than them, but it simply says, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. They were commissioned, sent if you please, and the message was the message of repentance, the message of the character of salvation through the name of the Savior. Notice this first day of the week, the very day the Lord was resurrected, they were commissioned to preach this wonderful message. On this occasion, Jesus would reiterate this to them in Acts 1 verse 8, and the marvelous fact leads us only to what comes in fact next. For as we pointed out just a moment ago, at least one of the apostles was not present at this meeting. Thomas was not there. Amazingly enough, the other disciples were quick, though, to inform Thomas as to what had taken place. They said, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, however, wasn't as convinced. Remember, he hadn't been present. Rather, Thomas said, except I see the nail prints in his hands, and except I put my fingers into those nail prints and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. We're quickly able, though, to appreciate that the Lord fixed that lacking in the mind of Thomas for the very next Lord's Day, the next Sunday. One week from this first appearance to the disciples, Jesus again appeared to them. They were again assembled. Jesus yet again appears, and this time Thomas was present. I would ask you to notice what the Lord said to Thomas. Beginning in verse number 27, Jesus, speaking to Thomas, said, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas, the previous Sunday, had refused to believe because he hadn't seen the risen Lord, though his fellow apostles had testified to him. Now, Jesus directly says, Put your fingers and observe, and be not faithless but rather be believing. It was on that occasion that Thomas responded, My Lord and my God. Which interestingly is the answer to the question that appeared in the bulletin. And so you can see how easily that fits into the placement and the marvelous wonder of what Thomas came to believe. He now was convinced that Jesus had appeared. He was convinced in the resurrection and all that it involved Amazingly enough, you can see that which follows to be this. Jesus again pronounced peace to these grouped apostles, and he pronounced upon them a very lasting and wonderful blessing. With that statement, that draws us to the close of chapter 20. And the last two verses of John chapter 20 are a marvelous prologue, in fact, for not only this book, but all four gospel accounts. It could well be asked, why did the Holy Spirit see fit? to provide us four gospel accounts, four records of the amazing life of the Christ, four independent accounts of all the goodness and the things which He taught, the way that He conducted His life, the manner in which He commissioned His followers. John 20, verses 30 and 31 provide the reasoning, the impetus, but why, between why these gospel accounts were given. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. That to this day remains the reasoning behind the gospel accounts. These are written that you might believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The only way to life is still through the name of the Savior. He had affirmed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. And now with the closing of that book, the closing of that chapter, I should say, we have but one chapter remaining. The grand finale, if you please, of the book of John. In this closing chapter, we have, in fact, the interesting observation that Jesus makes one other appearance. We learn later, of course, from the book of 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to many brethren and to many individuals. But John chooses to record one other major appearance of the resurrected Christ. It is in chapter 21. Let's note the details of that. And with that observation, let's then finish the lesson by applying some of the things from it to even ourselves yet today. Jesus, you'll notice in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 21, begins to make one other appearance, but this time it's a very different kind of appearance. Peter had the idea to go fishing, and many of the other apostles chose to accompany him, to go, in fact, enjoy a time of fishing. We shouldn't forget that these, of course, did have families, it would seem. Peter, we understand, was married. And so, of course, they couldn't simply devote all of their time to means other than at least from time to time providing for their families. Peter chose to go fishing. And with the accompaniment of the other apostles, something rather dramatic happens, something which I'm sure they would never, ever forget. It unfolded like this. As they fished, they labored all night and caught nothing. It was a rather toilsome night, and yet it ended with an empty net because they had not been able to catch anything. And yet as the morning began to dawn, a gentleman appears on the shore they do not recognize who he is. But he does give them instruction. Cast the net on the right side of the ship or on the right side of the boat, if you will. These fishermen, in fact, do as the stranger suggested. They cast upon the right side, and much to their surprise, the net is so full they are not even able to pull it up into the boat. John seems to quickly recognize it's the Lord. And in fact, he says that to Peter. Peter, it's the Lord. That gentleman on the shore is the Lord. Peter, in great haste and also marvelous excitement, dawns on his fisher's jacket, jumps into the water, and proceeds to swim to shore to be near his master, to be near the Savior. The others, of course, continue in their boat to come to shore. They are, in fact, holding the net in the water so that the buoyancy will at least allow them to bring the load or the catch to shore. When they come to shore, they find a coal of fire prepared. And they furthermore notice that there's fish cooking upon the fire and bread also available. On that early morning hour, they share a meal with Jesus. The resurrected Lord, they eat with Him. Following that meal, Jesus has a conversation with Peter. And the conversation has somewhat an interesting ending to it, at least for Peter's consideration. During the course of it, beginning in verse number 15... Notice the interesting questions that Jesus asked Peter. Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Peter responded, if I might paraphrase, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus responded, Feed my sheep. Then Jesus turned to Peter again and said, Lovest thou me more than these, Peter? 
And isn't it interesting? Peter, yes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus again said, feed my sheep. The third time, the Lord again addressed Simon, the son of Jonah, and said, lovest thou me more than these? Again, Peter said, yes, you know I love you. And yet again, Jesus said, tend to my lambs, feed my sheep if you please. At that particular point, an interesting discussion ensues between, again, Peter and Jesus, and it involves John. For Jesus had previously informed him directly that the time will come in life when you will be directed as to where you might not wish to go. And we're told that that had reference to the way that Peter would die. Peter, however, asked, what about him? Referring to John, what about him? If these things shall befall me, what might be said about this other one? Jesus, in a way, rebuked Peter on that occasion. He said, let that not concern you. You be faithful to me. What befalls him, let that between, be between me and him. And with that, the curtain closes on chapter 21. The curtain closes on the book of John. And as it does so, how marvelously we have been brought in tune with the revelation of the Christ, the wonder of His presence, the nature of His message, and how powerful He involved Himself for your benefit and for mine. I might suggest at that point that we devote some attention and to look at some of the things concerning the matter of lessons that we'll take from this particular discussion. The lessons, in fact, <clears throat> I have listed to be four. Though many others might have been drawn, let's at least spend a few moments and look at these four significant matters. First of all, when those disciples were gathered on that first day of the week in the evening hour, and again one week later, again they were gathered, it is to be noted how significant it was that Thomas was absent and how significant it was as to what he missed. Might we in fact re rehearse that in our mind again? That opening occasion when the Lord met with them, they all believed in His resurrection, but Thomas didn't. There was one week of his life when Thomas was in doubt. Thomas, in fact, was beside himself in wonderment about what the disciples had testified, but what he refused to believe. Doesn't that help us at least see the significance of the assembly times? To come together because of what Thomas missed, that he didn't have to miss, he could have been present and enjoyed the same degree of confidence and the same degree of assurance as they did. No wonder the Hebrew writer would later say, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. That reminds us so ever wonderfully that our times together are significant. Jesus appeared to them not once but twice, on consecutive Lord's days. And today it's still to be noted in Revelation 1 verses 9 and 10 that this day is called the Lord's Day. We are privileged. Yea, we are wonderfully blessed to be able to come together. It should be a genuine highlight of our week, shouldn't it? To come together with those of like precious faith, 2 Peter 1 verse 1, to come together to lift high and magnify the name of the Lord, 1 Chronicles 16, 29. To profess the majesty of His name, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, And to proclaim His death until He come. All of that we do when we're here. It goes without saying we can't do any of that when we're not here. 
we then should help others to also see the blessing that we enjoy so that they will come and have an interest in being present with us. The significance of our gatherings. As we open the book of Acts, we notice that it was significant that Paul and the others assembled on those appropriate times on the first day of the week, Acts 20 verse 7, and also in Acts 28. Those things tell us that when we gather on the first day of the week, that's the day God selected. And we notice the disciples began to meet on that day, on the very day the Lord was resurrected. Isn't it interesting then to see the perspective that some choose to take? That the Old Testament Sabbath is somehow still to be a day that is respected and a day that is honored by assembling that day. There are those in our own community who still think the Sabbath is the appropriate day. If that be true, why were the disciples assembling on the first day of the week? If that were true, why throughout Acts is nothing said about Jesus commanding the assembly on the Sabbath? But they did assemble on the first day of the week to give as they were prospered, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, to partake of the Lord's Supper, Acts 20, verse 7. And in the Revelation, that's the day that John was in the Spirit, Revelation 1, verse number 10. All of that helps us see that those who still think that the Sabbath is a binding matter have failed to understand that the Sabbath was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2, verses 14 to 16, and it was taken out of the way. Nobody today on earth is bound to that law of the Sabbath. Nobody. Since our Savior nailed that Old Testament law of Moses to the cross, and it included the Sabbath, and Paul said so explicitly, Colossians 2, 16, we understand today the first day of the week is that bright and beautiful day, and every week has a first day, and that's the day reminiscent of the Lord's resurrection and the day that we come together in honor of Him and of what He did for the gospel era. Isn't it wonderful to remember in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, speaking of the fruit of the vine, this is my blood which is shed for you for the remission of sins. It is that day, then, the first day of the week, we honor the nature of all that the Lord stood for, the new gospel ministration that He brought to bear upon the human family. But in the second place, yet another lesson, might we also notice that the Scripture is sufficient for belief. In John 20, verses 30 and 31 again, John was quick to notice many other things truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, but these are written that you might believe that believing he might have life in his name. In what way today might we react and respond to those who would say, I need him to personally talk to me before I'll believe. I need God to call me especially until I believe. There are those who feel somewhat like that, aren't there? And yet might we again notice carefully what John said, These are written that you might believe. We greatly fool ourselves, and so does anyone else, if we think that there shall be anything beyond the presentation of God's holy word. God does not come to you and me in dreams. He doesn't talk to you and me in ways unlike the way He communicates with others. For if He did, He'd be a respecter of persons. And the Scriptures expressly state, God is no respecter of persons. Acts 10, 34 and 35, Romans 2, verse 11 Thus, we see that in the Word there is all sufficient means for you and me to believe. 
If we won't believe what's in here, we won't believe it even if he were to appear to us. Didn't the Lord, in fact, state that to the rich man? In Luke, the 16th chapter, the rich man said, Send someone back to talk to my brothers that they come not to this place. Do we remember what Father Abraham said? Father Abraham said they've got Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe them, they won't believe one even if he were to return from the dead. You see, we have the inspired, all-sufficient, authoritative Word of God. If a person is unwilling to believe that, unwilling to check it and appreciate the thoroughness, the consistency, the marvelous unity that it possesses, that person wouldn't even be convinced if one were to appear from the dead. Thus, the power of the Scriptures is testified in the New Testament in marvelous wonder. This is not just another book. Admittedly, the Putnam County Library and the Tennessee Tech Library are filled with books, but none of them are like this one. This one truly is the road map that leads to heaven. Jesus, in fact, affirmed on many occasions. One particular passage in John 6, 63, The words that I say unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Later, Peter would affirm in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that all things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed. Paul to Timothy said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Notice that this book leads to perfection. This book leads to completeness. It leads a person to be able to stand right in the sight of God. May we thus not lose sight of the sufficiency of the Scriptures and to lift that thought high in our life and in the lives also of those whom we have the privilege to meet. In the third place, it was to Peter three times Jesus said, Do you love me? Do you love me? Lovest thou me more than these? There have been many who have made interesting note that the words that Jesus used and those that Peter used were different. There was more than one Greek word for love. There's that word agape that we've often noted. That is that conscious, evaluated choice to choose to act toward the well behalf of another. There is, though, another kind of love, the word phileo. That word refers to a more tender, affectionate kind of love in which one responds by sometimes emotion we can see that there is a difference in those kinds of love. And as we think about that word phileo, might we at least keep in mind words like Philadelphia, which means the city of brotherly love, and we can now see where phileo enters into that. It is the word love. Notice, Jesus said, Lovest thou me? Agape me, Peter, more than these. And Peter said, Yes, Lord, I phileo you. They use different words. Is that the problem? Is that why the Lord asked Peter three times? It would seem not. For both of those kinds of love involve intensity. Both of them involve a characteristic of great magnitude. Perhaps the reason that three questions were asked by Jesus, perhaps the reason three times he asked Peter was this. Had it not been the case that Peter exemplified a rather noted degree of wavering, Remember, on Thursday night before the Lord was crucified, it was Peter who said, If all of them depart from you, Lord, I won't. I'll die for you if that's what's required. 
And yet, though the fact is, Peter had made that statement. It wasn't six hours later until Peter himself also denied Jesus three times. It was that same Peter, you see, who in that characteristic of time pronounced the greatness of his loyalty. And yet not many hours later, he denied they even knew Jesus. Maybe this was Peter, the, this, maybe this was the Lord's way of encouraging Peter to think seriously, to think directly, and to incorporate into his life the greatness of his emotional feelings and let them lead to the agape love of great evaluation and trueness of spirit. It would seem that Peter did that. It would seem after his repentance over the nature of that denial and given the fact that he was the first to preach the gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2, maybe we can appreciate the greatness of his feelings and the strong, unwavering apostle that he became. Perhaps in light of these things, it does lead us to see that in answer to every one of those questions, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Obviously, Jesus did not mean go and literally feed sheep. The Lord had a higher calling. Notice that Peter again was somewhat exemplified as a leader amongst those apostles. He was bold. He was aggressive. He had been the one on many occasions that first answered. Had it not been him in John 6 who said, Lord, thou hast the words of eternal life, to whom shall we go? Had it not been Peter who jumped out of that boat and walked on water for a little while? Had it not been Peter who in the lesson tonight jumped out of the boat and swam? It isn't said any of the other apostles did that. Wasn't it Peter who in addition was blessed to be present on the Mount of Transfiguration and see the Lord transfigured, he along with James and John? Had it not been Peter who in the Garden of Gethsemane was called closer to the Lord? Had it not been Peter present, you see, in a number of ways, and he had the opportunity to influence others so greatly for the cause of Jesus. Jesus said, feed my sheep, Peter, feed my sheep. And on that beautiful Pentecost day, after having been baptized in the Holy Spirit, Peter and the eleven stood up and preached the first gospel sermon, and Peter's the one who said in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You see, he with boldness pointed the accusing finger to the very Jews before whom he spoke, and they, at least 3,000 of them about in number, responded in faith and were baptized into the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter did begin to feed the sheep. Through the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter is the central figure. He preached boldly, he preached straightforwardly, he preached courageously, and as he did so, multitudes came to appreciate the glorious goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that takes us to one of the final thoughts as we discuss Feed My Sheep. Today, it's not to say that we are eyewitnesses of the risen Lord like Peter was, but we also are to be those with the word of Christ upon our lips. We are to be those described in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. We have seen then this evening as we've discussed the love for the Lord and His Word, that that can only challenge us to think about the closing verses to the 8th chapter of the Roman letter. 
For in verses 35 to 39 of that chapter, we are reminded of the greatness and the powerful character of the love of Christ and how that that should be a real part of our life today. In fact, in that set of verses, Paul, in fact, remarks so lovingly, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God found in the Christ, exemplified through what the Lord did for us. In our study of John, we have seen in ways like no other the way in which Jesus is presented to the world. A person of loving character, a person who truly as the Son of God nonetheless is keenly interested in every single one of us. He wants you to be saved and He wants me to be saved. And He gave His life at Calvary and then challenged Peter to feed His sheep. Those apostles did feed the sheep of our Lord. And today we still have the lovely wonder of seeing the character of that word and how it is the sustenance that we need to use day by day. This evening, as you think about your life, are you a faithful Christian? Have you had your sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb, the one who died for you? If you've never become a Christian, tonight would be the perfect night. You could be made clean and whole in His sight. All the sins that have been in your life, no matter what they are, upon your repentance and your submission to His will, they will be forgiven. You'll come forth from that watery grave of baptism as pure and clean as a newborn baby in a spiritual sense. Everything that you've done amiss will have been forgiven. Doesn't that thought excite you? Isn't it something you want to experience? That could happen tonight. As you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, then repent of your sins. After that repentance, be willing to verbally state the nature of your belief and then be baptized. If we could assist you in those things, it would only take a few moments and your life will never be the same again. If you have become a Christian, but you no longer are faithful and true, and in the Revelation we are told the Lord is faithful and true, He wants us to be faithful and true to Him. If you haven't been, why not? It's for sure Satan had a hand in it. But give Satan a quick exodus from your life and draw near to the Savior. We're told in the New Testament, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Tonight, if you need to come back to your first love, if you need the prayers of brethren on your behalf, brethren here would be more than delighted to pray with you and for you. And if we could be of assistance in carrying that out, we'd be delighted to be of that assistance. We would only ask that you would let us know in what way we could help while together we stand and while we sing.